Good morning. How's everybody doing? Well, welcome to Church of the King. If you're new, welcome. My name is Jake. I am the lead pastor here. Um, I want to begin this morning just by saying a couple things. Um, first of all, you may have noticed that over the last weeks, does anybody want to guess how many different preachers we've had over the last eight weeks? Anybody have an idea? It's more than five. It's six. Six over the last eight weeks. How cool is that? That's really cool. It's really exciting. And next week, it'll be seven over nine weeks. Seven different preachers over nine weeks. That's really cool, and it's exciting. And it's something to celebrate as a church. It's something to be excited about, because our goal, our hope, our prayer from the beginning is that God would use us to raise up leaders for his kingdom. And God's doing that. It's exciting, and it's cool. And so um, it's been a fun summer just to be able to hear three guys that have never preached here before step into the pulpit, um, to have a guest preacher. It's been good. Uh, second of all, um, because of all of that, if you are new or if you've been new over the last couple of weeks, you may be forgiven for thinking that we just sort of like preach whatever we feel like when we step into the pulpit, right? This week it might be Psalms, next week it might be First John, who knows, who cares? Uh, we reserve the right when we feel like God has something to say to you as a people to preach whatever we feel like whatever we think is best for you. We have that pastoral liberty. But in general, what we try to do here is preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so for the past 11 months, we have been preaching through the book of church, Romans. Romans. And we are in Romans chapter, I forget, something, somewhere in there. 11, 11. Romans chapter 11. Okay. So Romans chapter 11. And Romans, of course, begins with the biggest problem that we all face, which is Sin. Us. What's wrong with the world? We are. We are. Sin is. Right? So we are all sinners. Some of us are rebels. Some of us are hypocrites. Some of us are judgmental jerks. But we're all sinners. It doesn't matter if we grew up in church or out of church. Some of us begin as outsiders. Some of us have grown up in Christian homes and begin as insiders. But what matters? What matters is faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus came, he was born as a man, he lived a perfect life, he died a perfect death for our sins, and we lay hold of that by faith, and through that, God reconciles us to him, counts us righteous. And then we begin a journey of what we call sanctification, growth and godliness. So far, so good, right? This morning, we're in Romans 11. That means we're uh, nearing the end of a big chunk of scripture that has been asking the question, well, how is it that someone actually comes into a relationship with God? And what actually happens and how does it work? And what are the consequences of that? And the big answer is that God does it, right? God is sovereign over all of it. If we belong to God, it's because God chose us. We weren't out looking for God. We weren't out pursuing God. Nobody was, right? Remember that from none is righteous. Nobody seeks after God. So God had to seek after us. Okay, so it's all of God from first to last. But if that's true, then that leads to some bigger questions, doesn't it? If that's true, why are there some who don't believe? Why doesn't God just save everybody? And more specifically, why are there so many of the children of Abraham, we spent you know, all of chapter 4 and 5 talking about, why are there so many of the children of Abraham who have rejected Jesus, their Messiah? Have God's promises somehow failed? 
has God come up short somehow? And we've had a couple of answers. And the first is, of course, obviously, no. God's promises haven't failed. Okay, but why? Well, because God does what He wants. And we don't get to judge Him for that. We just put our hands over our mouths. And we trust that His hands are better than our hands. It's better left in His hands than ours. If it was all in our hands, what would happen? We all burn. We all burn. Right? Okay, but still, what about the children of Abraham? What about Israel? What about the Jews? Has God rejected them? So here's the thing. For thousands of years, the people of Israel suffered, trying to be righteous in a world that was hostile to God and hostile to them. And they were alone. They tried to live up to God's standards and to God's law, waiting for a Messiah who would come and who promised deliverance, who promised a kingdom that would cover the whole earth. And so Jesus shows up and he says, okay, I'm here, I'm the king, and it's time to open up salvation to the whole world. And they're like, wait a minute, no, no, no. We suffered. You're supposed to make life easy for us now. You're supposed to set up your kingdom and get rid of the bad guys. You're supposed to coerce them. You're supposed to rule over them. And then we get elevated. And Jesus is like, yeah, no, I have a better idea. How about we take those enemies and make them our friends? My kingdom's not like you thought it was. How about we bring them into the family? How about we adopt them? How about they get all the same promises you get? How about we become one big family of the people of God? And Israel's like, yeah, I don't like that. Don't want it. Don't want it. I want my own room. I want the promises for me. I thought you were going to come and smack down the enemies, not make them our friends, not make them my brothers and sisters. Sort of like, you know, you know pick your sports metaphor. Uh, Cleveland Cavaliers spend decades being the worst team in basketball, and then LeBron James shows up. And what do you want to do? You want to go around and just rub it in everybody's face, right? And Jesus says, that's not the plan. The plan is to invite everybody in. We win with the word, not with the sword. It's about conversion, not domination. So Israel says, no, we're not here for that. Forget it. Forget it. We're done. All those things that we've been suffering, saying no to, we're going after it. We're just going to live our lives now. We deserve it. We've earned it. You owe it to us. We're going to enjoy everything that we've missed out on and forget you, God. And so today, the highest concentration of atheists in the world live where? Israel. Israel. And we understand how that works on a heart level, right? We all understand how that works. Because we've all suffered. As Christians, we've suffered for our faith. We suffer and live in a world that's hostile to God and hostile to God's truth and hostile to us and hostile to our children. And we know that if we suffer by faith, we will grow but it's really easy to cherish a little bit of self-pity. 
and a little sense that we deserve better than this, and a little bit of bitterness, a little bit of it shouldn't really be this way. Cultivate a little bit of that bitterness, a little bit of sense that eventually God owes us and he's going to have to pay out. And then when the opportunity comes to take what it is we've thought we've deserved all this time, we take it and walk away. It happens all the time in the church. You see it over and over and over again. It can happen in any place in our life where we felt like we have suffered for God's kingdom. Or where our lives just aren't living up to our hopes and our dreams and our expectations. It can happen in our jobs. It can happen in our finances. It can happen in our marriages. It can happen with our kids. It's greener pastures. We suffer, or we think we're suffering. Cultivate an inner sense of entitlement, inner sense of I deserve better than this woman or this man that you gave me, God, or than these children, or than this job, or than my financial situation. And then the opportunity comes, and you wouldn't think it, but that person bounces. I know of a pastor who is a strong, conservative, faithful, stalwart preacher who is pastoring a small church in a small town, not making a lot of money. He and his wife went into, what do you call it, mid-level marketing stuff. What? Multi-level marketing, thanks. It started making money and then left the ministry and left the faith all together because, they, you know, they deserved it. It was owed to them. They had suffered a long time and they never really got to what they thought they deserved for their family. We get bitter, we get entitled. When God doesn't deliver to us what we think he owes us, in, on our terms or on our timeline, we reject him. The fruit is apostasy. This happens to us as individuals. This happens to whole families. This happens to churches and groups of churches, to denominations, and it happens to nations. It's what we're talking about today because that's where we're at in Romans 11, because that is what happened to Israel. So what about Israel? Israel matters. The Jewish people matter because they're the children of Abraham, according to the flesh. We, most of us in this room, unless you're a descendant of Abraham, unless you have Jewish heritage, we're all Gentiles. And if you believe, you're a child of Abraham according to faith what we've been adopted then into the family of Abraham, into the people of Abraham. As today's passage will say, we've been grafted in to a tree that already existed. We were brought in to the people of God. They were there. They're connected to the root, which is Christ. And we weren't. We were out here doing our own thing. And God grafted us in, into the family, adopted us in. We were outsiders who became insiders at some point. That's important. It's important because it's the work of our God. It's important because it's the heritage of the people of God, which is what we now are. So it's now our adopted heritage. And it's important because God didn't just make promises to Abraham and to Abraham's children. When he drew us in, he made promises to us and to our children. So seeing how God deals with his children 
is important to us because we have promises for our children too. The Bible was written by Abraham's children. Its heroes were descended from Abraham. Jesus himself is a descendant of Abraham. It's important. It matters. So again, here's the question. If this book comes to us from the children of Abraham, and it's about the salvation of the world through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, why don't very many Jews love Jesus today? Okay, the Apostle Paul, who was an apostate Jew who persecuted God and God's people until Jesus grabbed hold of him, has been answering that question since chapter 9. So let's pick back up in chapter 11, verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Okay, so here's what he's saying. The Jews, by and large, had rejected Jesus. In so doing, they made a door open for Gentiles like you and me to come and join the party. For all kinds of reasons. Now, Jesus told everybody this is what was happening and what was going to happen before it happened. Okay, he told parables about this sort of thing. He said, this is what's going to happen. He marched into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as king, and they wanted to make him king, and they wanted him to conquer and subdue the Romans, and he said, you got it all wrong. And in fact, this kingdom is going to be taken away from you and given to a people that will bear the fruit of it. And that's why they killed him. Because he came in, and then he just immediately, you remember what happens, right? He comes in, the people are there, and the Pharisees are lying in wait for him, and they want to trap him. So, like, that's on Sunday. Monday morning, he gets up, and you, see, you have that fig tree thing, right? That's a metaphor. It matters. He goes to the fig tree. It's there. It's a mature tree. It's full of leaves. He reaches out for some fruit. Doesn't have any. So he curses it, and it withers and dies. And then he immediately goes to the Pharisees and says, your time is done. It's over. And he tells these parables, and we're going to read them because I want you to see. And these aren't the only parables like this, okay? But this is as he is getting ready. This is the week of the crucifixion. This is how he's coming at them. And this is why they're going to kill him. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They, this is the Pharisees answering, said to him, 
He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of the, in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this, his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and every, everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, How'd you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the, to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, so two parables back to back. In one of those parables, he talks about how he's going to marshal the troops and destroy their city and everyone in it. And in a little bit, he's going to start talking about what's going to, ha what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And then you know what happened to Jerusalem. In 70 AD, Jerusalem was wiped out, destroyed, burned to the ground. And the horrors of what happened, everyone should read about. Why? Because they rejected the sun. Jesus went to the leaders of the Jewish people in Jerusalem and said, you have forsaken God. You have a shell of the truth with no substance. You're whitewashed tombs. You're nothing more than hypocrites and liars. You have religion, but no faith, and the kingdom is being taken away from you. And he wept as he did it. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, stones the prophets. How I've longed to gather you, but you would not. Your time is done. It's over. And that's why they crucified him. And this is God's plan. He's going to give the kingdom to a people who will bear its fruit. He's going to give it to tax collectors and prostitutes and ultimately to the Gentiles, which is going to drive Israel crazy. It's going to drive them nuts. It's going to make unbelieving apostate Israel jealous. As they see the people who are not the people of God begin to experience the blessing of God in their lives. These are my blessings. These are my promises. My people suffered for these things. You can't just have them. The Romans killed and tortured us. You can't just convert them and forgive them. And that's what God did. And God says the point is that that jealousy is eventually going to lead them back to God, back to him. 
This is a dumb analogy, but have you ever done the thing with your kids where uh, you've got like the big toy box or whatever full of toys that nobody cares about anymore and has never ever played with? And you're like, ah, let's go through those toys. Let's get some of those toys. And we're going to take them to Goodwill or World Mission or someplace like that. Now suddenly, the thought of some other kid playing with those toys that you've neglected, that you don't appreciate, that you have no gratitude for whatsoever. It's like, well, actually, I want that. I'm going to play with that for a minute. It happens, right? Stupid analogy. They weren't good enough. They weren't interesting. But suddenly they get jealous over the things, all of the things that they had, all the riches they took for granted. God says it's going to be kind of like that. It's going to be kind of like that. Over time, the Gentiles are going to get so excited about Jesus and are going to experience so much of God's love and blessing that the Jewish people are going to get jealous and then say, that's supposed to be me. That's supposed to be me. And they're going to have to go back to the beginning and be truly humbled. Because what happened was Abraham was just the child of unbelievers like anybody else. And God adopted Abraham. God chose and called Abraham just like anybody else. And that's all Paul said in Romans 4 and 5. You remember? Abraham was just another dude like the rest of us, except God chose him and God laid his favor on him. God decided Abraham's going to be mine. Abraham was the, children, the child, a son of unbelievers. God brought him in and he built a house. And it was just God and the children of Abraham for thousands of years. And then all that happened was God came and said, now it's time. Now it's time to grow the family. I'm going to adopt more people in just like I did you. And Israel got angry and said, I don't want to share. I want my own room. I want my own things. It's not fair. Sort of like the prodigal son, Israel has taken his inheritance and said, I'm going to go spend it. And God the Father has gone out and done what he had always promised to do, which is adopt the rest of the world. Pull in men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And give them all the promises, whether they deserved it or not. And treat us all like firstborn children. And so for a long time, Israel has stayed angry. Can't believe dad would adopt those stupid Gentile kids. Why is he trying to replace me? Eventually, that jealousy is going to lead to them coming home in a big way. But not until they've been humbled. They must accept that dad did not reject them by loving other people who needed love. There's always love enough for everyone. They were the ones that rejected God. They were the ones that rejected God. Israel forgot that his people were unbelievers at one point. And that it's right and good for God to look at all the families of the earth and say, I'm going to love and call them too, out of darkness into light. Israel's the first fruits, but the goal was always that all of the nations of the world would be blessed in Abraham. So here's what Paul's saying. When Israel realizes and accepts that, things are going to get crazy. Because if great things happen for the whole world when Israel rejected God, and we all agree that great things have happened for the world because Israel rejected God, right? Like the growth of 
God's kingdom in the whole world is amazing. Here we are on the complete opposite side of the globe, in a gym, in a cornfield, on a previously undiscovered continent. It's crazy, right? Like, it's crazy what God, the riches of God's blessing and mercy to the world. All, the Christian faith has reshaped the entire Western world. We are all still to this day, no matter what's happening out there, the attacks that have come, we are all bearing, we're all like in, inheriting the fruit of that. It is God's blessing to the world. And those precious few things that you enjoy, you can't trace back to the spread of the gospel. I don't care if it's the air conditioning in this room. Paul says, you think that great things happened? Then you wait. You wait until the prodigal comes home. You wait until the prodigal comes home. The fattened calf is going to be slaughtered. There will be a party in heaven and on earth, and it will be crazy. It's going to get nuts because God is that gracious and that generous, and it is what he wants. He will be happy when they come home. And that's what this is all driving toward. So last time Paul answered the question, did God cut off Israel by saying, wait, 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 no, wait, hold on a second. Look at me. I'm a, not me, Paul, right? I'm talking for Paul, right? I'm a Jew. I was an apostate Jew. I was persecuting and here I am. There's a remnant. There's always a remnant. So no, not completely, right? Not completely. Now he's answering the question by saying, not only is it not complete, it's also not final. And there's something coming that's big and beautiful. It's all headed toward a glorious end. But let's keep working. Let's keep reading. Because we have to deal with our own hearts in this too, right? And he understands that. He understands that. So he's going to come at us now, okay? But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. You, they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast to your faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Okay, so Israel went apostate. They were the people of God. They rejected God. They killed Jesus. They stopped believing. Because of that, God says, it's like a tree. Faith of Abraham is like an olive tree. Okay, now my understanding, just olive trees in general, uh, a cultivated, mature olive tree can bear fruit for multiple generations, like three, four hundred years, okay? There's a reason that's what's chosen here. But they have to be tended and cultivated. They have to be tended and cultivated. They have to be pruned. Bad branches must be broken off. Okay, so the faith of Abraham is like an olive tree, and there were natural branches. They were there first. For years they bore great fruit for God, but many of them stopped producing. So they had to be cut off. They had to be broken off because they were dead. They were broken off for their unbelief. They were broken off to make space for wild olive shoots to be grafted in. Uh, wild olive shoots by themselves are worthless. They're, no, they're not good for much of anything. But they can become productive over time if you can successfully graft them into a mature olive tree. 
You familiar with how this works? I'm not a gardener. I had to like read about this. I'm going to do my best. If you as a gardener who can like fix anything I get wrong, it's fine. You tell me later. And then I'll forget to correct it publicly and it'll just live the way it is. Um, But you have a tree that's got dead branches. You cut them off because they're not producing fruit. Now you've got space. Okay. So you take a wild living shoot. Okay. One that can't really do much on its own. You cut a notch in the trunk of the tree. You splice it in. You bind it up. And it sort of, Lord willing, heals all back together. And that little shoot, once it connects to the root of the mature tree, over time begins to produce like a mature branch. Something it never could have done on its own. And it starts to bear fruit. And that's the analogy for what's happened between Jews and Gentiles over the last couple thousand years. Over the last couple thousand years, branches have been broken off and wild shoots from every tongue and tribe and nation with just a little bit of green sap of faith being grafted in, bound up. They come in from all kinds of wild places. Going to take some time to mature, but when they get connected to the root, they mature and they begin to bear fruit and they begin to spread out and they begin to grow. And over time, it gets sort of healed up. It looks like it belongs. One Lord, one God, one faith, one way of salvation, one olive tree, one people of God, one family of God, one faith of Abraham, one Christ. And over time, many of the children of, God, of Abraham apostatized. They rejected God. They got cut off. God turned, like in the parables, to the Gentiles. He's been grafting us into the tree, pulling us into the family, adopting us, causing us to bear fruit so that some of our families have now multiple generations of faithfulness and fruit. And some of us are brand new, figuring out, getting things healed up, working towards bearing fruit, hoping to become a strong branch that lasts for generations. So the question is, then again, and what about all those branches that were cut off? What about them? So again, first, remember, not all the branches have been cut off. Second, realize there's an end game. The end game is to bring them all back in. Third, be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Because you're going to be tempted to think that it was all because you're better than them. And you're not. You're not. You're going to be tempted to think that you're better than Israel, and you're not. You're going to be tempted to think that you're better than those churches that have gone apostate and left the faith. And you're not. You're going to be tempted to think that you're better than all those churches and people that have compromised on Scripture and on sexuality and have caved to the culture. And he says, don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. This is what happens. This is what happens. Don't be arrogant because that's what got Israel into the mess that she's in in the first place. And you're not different. You're just newer. So if you're here, if you're in the tree, if you're bearing fruit, it's because you were grafted in by a master gardener. And you stand here by faith and you can be cut off for your unbelief. So don't be proud, but fear. 
This is what happens over time. God's people fall into presumption and they think they deserve God's blessing and they feel entitled. And God comes to examine the fruit like Jesus comes to examine the fig tree by the side of the road. And that tree was there and it was full of promise with all of its leaves and it had no fruit and Jesus cursed it. And it's a metaphor for what happened to the people of Israel at that moment. And it's a metaphor for what has continued to happen to the people of God in different times and places across multiple generations. Jerusalem got cut off. Rome began to thrive. We're reading the book, Romans. Rome went corrupt. Reformation happened in Germany and France. It spread to England, from England to America. Here we are. So you want to see what the future is? You just trace it back down the line. How are Germany and France today? How was Rome? How was Jerusalem? As goes the church, so goes the culture. As it blossoms, it grows strong. As it goes apostate, it gets decadent and godless and it dies. God begins to move in other places. It's also a metaphor for some of the families represented in this room. Maybe it's a metaphor for your family. You have a heritage of godliness, but we're down the line now. Don't be presumptuous. Be grateful. Maybe it's a metaphor for you. Maybe you've spent your life keeping up appearances and putting on a face and making a show, and you need to not try to pretend to be something you're not. Jesus wants fruit. He wants fruit. The fruit of repentance and faith. And you don't want to get to the judgment seat of God and find out that you are a fruitless dead branch only fit to be broken off and cast into the fire. Apostasy is real. But Jake, we're reformed and we believe in the perseverance of the saints. Yeah, perseverance to the end. Saints must persevere. But Jake, you've said over and over and over again that what God starts, God finishes. Yeah, yeah, how do you know God started the work? He finishes it. Do you want proof? You just keep on reading. It's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut, off, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Apostasy is real. Are you going to love your pride and your sin and be cut off? Or are you going to continue in God's kindness? Are you going to fight to remain faithful and to bear fruit for God? The work of pastors and elders and shepherds is helping you be sure that you make it to the end. It's the work of gardening, tending, pruning, coming to you and seeing that we have the fruit that God requires of all of us. I was talking with someone about this recently. I've not had the opportunity to, to minister on too many deathbeds, 
but I've had the opportunity to minister on some. And I always try to get a little time alone where I can just give someone a chance to confess anything they've been holding on to, anything they've been carrying, any secret they're afraid to take to their grave. And sometimes you hear some pretty amazing, surprising, awful things from people that you would never suspect. People that you would think are pillars of faith. You don't want to carry secrets to the grave. You want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance in this life. You need to fear God enough that appearances don't matter. How you look to other people is nothing compared to being free and righteous by faith in his sight. It's hard. It's hard because secret sins compound. You think, man, if people find out about that, it's going to get ugly. And then it just gets worse and worse. And the older you get, the harder it is to bear the thought of people knowing the truth. And the older you get, the more you have to repent, not just of the sin, but of the lie. The lie that was behind every smile. The lie that was there behind every conversation. If that's you, let me tell you, repentance is the gift that you have to offer your friends and your family, your parents, your children, your wife, your husband, this church. Not a fake righteousness, just the truth. The examples we need are the examples we see in Scripture. Big sinners with big sins with big repentance. Big faith in a big God who forgives big sins. Bigger than all our sins and failures. A God who's so gracious and generous that he looks at the branches he's cut off The children, not of Abraham, but the children of those who killed his son. And says, I would take you right back in in a heartbeat. Okay, now we don't have time to finish chapter 11 this week. So I'm going to close with this. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. I don't care if your family's new to the faith and you're raw from being cut up and grafted in. I don't care if your family goes back generations. You need to hear this. Do not be proud. Don't be proud. Fear God. Fear God more than men. Renew your commitment today to walking in repentance and faith because the God that grafted you in is the God that can cut you off. Renew your commitment to walking by faith and repentance every day, to dealing with your sin every day, to giving your kids something to build on so that they can bear fruit and their children can bear fruit and you can leave a legacy of faithfulness to the thousandth generation. Because it's not where you start and it's not where you finish. It's the trajectory, right? It's growth in godliness, that's something that can be built on, okay? That's something that can be built on. So don't grow weary. Don't be tired. Don't give up. 
Trust God. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace, your love, and your mercy to all of us. I pray this morning that you would renew in us a commitment to walking in repentance and faith, that we would fear you rightly, and that we would hate our sin, and that we would love our Savior, Jesus, who came to free us from the burden of our evil consciences so that we can walk in the light. It's in his name we pray. Amen.